I'll do it now. And that was the sound of Gary getting ready for... And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Cruise Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf, and a bottle of red wine on the Cruise Street Podcast! And we're back. We're off to the races. We're going to be a lot more boring than we were when we were talking to Stan Robinson, because Stan Robinson is not boring. And we can be. Let's admit it. <laughs> oh, we can be tedious as hell, Gary. I wouldn't oh, listen yeah. to half of our podcast. I have... I've listened to a couple all the way through, but uh, usually I can see the ending coming. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess we always have to allow that the two people on earth that this podcast is not for, in many ways, is exactly. us. We already know what we think. If we don't know after 530 episodes what we think by now, I think... I, it's, it's, it, that's a good point. It's very difficult for you to surprise me anymore. I remember once on the early podcast, one of our early recurring mm -hmm. features, which nobody ever asked to recur after we stopped doing it, was, <laughs> was, was books you don't need to read, which I thought yeah. was a clever idea. And I think it's more relevant now than ever with all the Lovecraft Asimov sure, stuff. And sure. so on. But the first thing you listed, you probably don't remember was Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, no, I remember that, yeah. You don't need to read it because it's terrible. It's not terrible. <laughs> it is It is long. <sighs> Look, I'll tell you, I maintain at least one of the three endings. Like three endings, the beats at the end of that book are all... I don't agree with that at all, but I think that one of the reasons that I don't agree with it is that there are at least three and possibly five or six radically different narrative styles what he's doing is not that much different from what you would get at the end of uh, of something like beowulf one of the things he did which i wish that more modern readers would learn from is not the world building stuff it's not even inventing a language it's that he managed to adapt his style to what he was describing in other words he would write in a kind of high heroic uh, language when he was describing the battles and that sort of thing. He would write in a Dickensian low comedy thing when he was describing uh, that home life of Bilbo Baggins and that sort of thing. He could write wildly romantic pieces. He could write horror. And the language changed for each scene. In other yeah. words, he was, uh, he, and, and a lot of people do know how to do that very well. But I see a lot of fantasy these days and a lot of science fiction for that matter. That's the same tone all the way through. Yeah, no, fair and, enough. Actually, Okay, I, I maintain. Okay, but you know, I, I will be more thoughtful, perhaps, rather than going for a glib response, which is my, my wife, and say, part of the reason you don't need to write read Tolkien isn't that I found found it impossible to get to the end. Like, never got to the end of it. Um, mm. The only way that I know exactly what happens at the end of The Lord of the Rings is because I watched Return of the King, and even then... I couldn't bring myself. I bought and didn't watch the extended edition of Return of the King because it was just like, yeah, no, no, no. But it is part. Of the, the reason that, in some ways, why the Lord of the Rings was the perfect kickoff to that conversation was oh. because the real purpose behind saying it's a book you don't need to read isn't that whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Whether it's it, it's a matter of saying you're free to read what you want to read. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, one of the one of the jokes behind that, I guess, was something we've said many times since then, because it's come up in different contexts, which is that you don't need to read anything. Uh, you ought to read certain things if you're going to write fiction. Uh, but for reading fiction, I don't like the idea that, uh, you know, what we've called the entrance exam uh, ideas of science fiction and fantasy before. True, but, but I think we also underestimate, or don't think through, perhaps is a better way to put it, don't think through clearly the 
the passage of time on all of this kind of thing. You know, you and I started reading at different times because of our age, people today, same thing. So mm -hmm. we sit there going, well, you know, the, once upon a time it would have been if you hadn't read X, Y, Z, then you, you wouldn't have the, I don't know, magical key understanding to magical keyness to be able to understand things. And yet now what you've got is you are way, generations of influence away from the key text. Mm -hmm. Really, in most, you don't need to have read the key text to understand the ripples and what they mean. You know, whilst there may or may not be value in reading, say, Starship Troopers, you don't need Starship Troopers to to have read Starship Troopers to do accurately and fully decrypt what's happening in a military space opera or science fiction novel today. You know, the the person who wrote who wrote your book read mm -hmm. Starship Troopers or read the book that it came after. No, that there, doesn't mean don't there, read those there things. Of, there mm -hmm. are plenty of uh, writers around who who like to put nuggets in for those who have read books that they are they're very fond of. We were talking a few weeks ago with with Alex E. Harrow, whose whose books are full of little love notes to her favorite fantasy books. Even and for that matter, uh, we. Lavi Tidar is a good example. Mm -hmm. um, you don't you certainly don't have to have read uh, any King Arthur books to understand his new novel, and you certainly, certainly, certainly don't need to have read the Strugatsky's Roadside Picnic. But there's a huge chunk in that book which is a homage to Roadside Picnic, and if you have read it, you're getting all kinds of layers of, of, of meaning, satire, and things you wouldn't otherwise get. Okay, this is, I mean, I actually had a topic in mind for today's conversation, and this okay. actually does feed into it, Which we'll, so we'll get to it in a minute, but let me ask you this. Can you think of any books that are so sui generis, right, so unique, so individual, that reading other things don't doesn't prepare you for them? You you have to read that book to get that experience. Um, yeah, I can think of some, and the, and the one, and you're going to, you're, you're going to sigh with, resignation when I mention that because it comes up every time I talk Would about it, a book. David Lindsay, yeah, Voyage to Arcturus? It's going to be David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus. There was nothing like it before. Lindsay had very few relations in, in literature. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no defending its style, but the vision is completely and originally, um, completely original, yeah. unpleasant though it is. I would add uh, a little bit more skillfully written, uh, but completely original in my mind, was the Gormenghast trilogy of yeah. Morton Peak. Even though in you can see echoes of that later in the field. Hmm? There are you echoes. Can, I mean, most yeah, notably, I mean, I early China Mieville is heavily influenced. Oh, China Mieville, I think, was influenced by it. I suspect that Susanna Clark's Piranesi is influenced by it. I'm fairly certain that Isabel Wilson's Young Adult series... Uh, Mike um, Harrison... Mike Harrison, probably, yes. And and, and Peake was uh, also, I think, somewhat influential as an artist. Yeah. Uh, so that what about Blood in the Mist? Blood in the Mist, I think, is another one. It doesn't, um, it doesn't come out of a tradition that you can clearly identify. In other words, she was part of this, uh, she was related, I guess, to Virginia Woolf and to um, um, that whole literary movement in, 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 in the 20s. But in terms of her fantasy, I think she must have read George MacDonald. She probably read uh, not necessarily Fantasties, which is another book that kind of comes by itself, but but The Princess and the Godlo Goblin, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So so when you go to Lut in the Mist, and draw, you can draw easily a, a dotted line between that, for example, and Neil Gaiman's Stardust. And but, I don't if that's think true, well, but if that's true, which sounds reasonable, well, then... It's not that so generous text in a way. I mean, is it possible to have a book? And like, this is a question: Is it possible to have a book that's remembered in the field and read in the field 
that doesn't have antecedents. Okay, there are. Okay, all the you're, you're confusing me now because I thought you were going to talk about a book which is read in the field but has not actually had that much influence. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, to go back to a voyage to Arcturus, I don't think that um, there's much you can point to. I, I I did part of my dissertation on it, so I can sure, point sure. to. The fact that he read George MacDonald and he read the German Romantics and he read uh, Scheller and this sort of thing. But very few books have tried to do anything like what uh, mm -hmm, David mm -hmm. Lindsay did. Robert Silverberg wrote Son of Man. Harold Bloom, in his only novel, literally rewrote A Voyage to Arcturus under the cleverly altered title Flight to Lucifer. Um, but apart from that, I don't think there's, there's not a school of literature that follows on that. And with... With Blood in the Mist, I think there is this notion of a barrier. I, I, it, actually, the barrier was there as early as the German Romantics in the 1820s. The barrier between fairyland and us, which is permeable. That became very important, mm -hmm. um, probably because Blood in the Mist. Uh, like I say, it, it, it has been there in fairy tales in the 19th century. But I think Hope Merleaves probably made it kind of a convention of fantasy. Okay. And so I think we see echoes of Blood in the Mist. Whereas, uh, give you an, uh, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm going to be too academic for a second, but a, a much earlier example is a fairy tale by Ludwig Tieck called The Elves, in which crossing a stream takes you in basically to Elfland uh, and crossing back. And it turns out time passes differently in Elfland than it does in the real world. So this basic idea that there's a magical portal that you can go to that will take you to a fantasy world, time passes differently, all kinds of things. You can see that in Narnia. You can see that in all kinds of conventional fantasy since then. Um, but my guess is that the people who pick up that idea probably picked it up from books like Blood in the Mist and probably not from some relatively obscure <laughs> fairy tale from 1815. That sounds, sounds deeply plausible. Okay, let me tell you what I was thinking before we started talking, and you'll see maybe why it mm -hmm. ties in. I've been thinking about rereading. I don't uh -huh. get to reread very much because of all of the reading I have to do, and I'm sure it's so true for right. yourself. Uh, I, I sort of d date 1997 as the d end of my rereading period because work, right? But uh, what I've been thinking about, and it was sparked by the trailer to Denis Villeneuve's D Dune Part 1 mm -hmm. that's, that's coming out later this year or early next. Uh, it led me to pick up June and start to look at it. I thought, this is really well written. This is, I mean, it opens really well. It's and very I thought, odd. I picked up, I, I started reading Dune the other day, and I thought, um, because I've, I've been reading a lot of the controversy about it, a lot of the question, mm -hmm. uh, the question that comes up about whether it actually is a white savior tale and this sort of thing. And I read the first couple of chapters and had exactly the same reaction you did, mm -hmm. um, which is that Herbert was actually... Uh, a, a much better writer in general than I think he was given credit for. I think the Santarogo Barrier is a, is, is a terrific novel. I think it's true, though. There are Go parts ahead. Of there's a, I will say, arrogantly, there are parts that I would have edited out. Mm. You know, like I was watching the first couple of pages going, yeah, take that line out. I'd, that seems like you just jumped too far ahead right there. And, but anyway, mm. uh, setting aside you know, the arrogance of me wanting to change a 45-year-old, 55-year-old classic text, um, Got me to thinking about rereading, how much we reread, and how well we remember what we read. Because we talk about things that are classics and favorites, but how many things can you look back on that are considered favorites of your own, classics in the field, that actually you've only read once, you read mm -hmm. once a long time ago, and if pressed, probably don't really remember? Almost everything I read before last week uh, would be... <laughs> I, I seriously look back on um, 
it's, it, I look back on titles that I reviewed 20 years ago, for example, mm -hmm. and sometimes I don't even recognize the title. Um, on, on the other hand, there are books that I read once that for some reason would, uh, and, and, and they're random books. They're not necessarily classic. Um, there um, was a novel by Paul Preuss, for example, that um, struck me as being, I, I'm blanking on the title of it right Secret now. Secret Passages. But I which one? Secret Passages. Yes, Secret Passage. From 1997. And, okay, for some reason that book, which is, I think, a good book. I, I've not reread it. Uh, it's certainly not attained classic status. It hasn't made a household name out of Paul, but uh, but I remember that very clearly. Um, and other things that I've read, to be honest with you, to go back to Lord of the Rings, I've read it all the way through once, and <laughs> since then I've, I've dipped into it here and there. So um, I've read more of the Lord of the Rings than you have. I read the whole thing. I read it three times, trying to get to the end, and I always got okay, at well, least. You've read it. You've read it more often than I have, which doesn't necessarily mean you've read more of it. Well, on read... the other hand, here's an example. I've read uh, two point nine books three times. I, okay, okay, but I want to get back to your point about how well you remember things. Yeah, because sure, sure, sure. Remembering is uh, there are different kinds of memory, and and I, I'm sure that as I age, which I am doing rapidly by the minute now, uh, there are things that are just fading away. But I will start reading, for example. The things I started out with, I started reading science fiction through Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. And I probably have read and reread Ray Bradbury more than any other writer simply because you keep bumping into him. Um, I, I've taught the Martian Chronicles. I've even taught Something Wicked This Way Comes. I reviewed all the, the when the stories of Ray Bradbury came out, that hundred, I reviewed that for local. So there's, and every time I start reading Ray Bradbury, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly how he's going to do what he does. And I read it anyway, mm -hmm. because it's 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 like a favorite playlist. It's like the song that you remember from your first date or something. I understand that. I understand that going back and having the the sense almost of putting an old you know comfortable old shoe on or something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you know it. You know, it, the the pleasures are the knowledge of of the text of of right. seeing the character. It's then there's that. I mean, what I detect when I'm reading June. I mean, I read June. I don't know, but I read it between age like ten and twenty. Hmm. I haven't read a June book novel story since probably since Chapter House June came out in eighty six or so. I think that's probably the last time I tried one. So I do talking, remember. Mm -hmm. Well, go ahead, finish your thoughts. Because no, so we're talking a long time, right? It's it's yeah. over thirty years. And what I found was, if you'd said to me, "Can you please sketch out, tell me what the story of June is?" I might have sat there going, "I don't think I can." And then. I found rereading, you know, like opening it up. As you stepped onto the path, it's like like one of those things like that, you know, the Michael Jackson video mm -hmm. where you get the, the path lighting up as he walks on. It's almost like that. You suddenly it's like, yeah. oh, there's Thufra Hawat, and there's this, and there's that, and there's and Jessica, there's Duncan and, Idaho, and there's the Gamjabar, and so forth and so on, yeah. And and, and you know, Princess Ergilan's piece, little head of pieces, much like what Stan Robinson does in a different way, right? And all of that, kind of just lights up and you fall back into it because you remember it, you know, as opposed to the stuff where you look at the book cover and, you know, I raved about this book in 1988 mm. or 1990 or 1995, but I don't know that I could tell you the name of a single soul inside its covers. You know, I read it once. Like I read, okay, I read um, Bridge of Birds by Barry Huart, I think once uh -huh. with uh, number 10 Ox and Master Lee. 
to, I, I could not tell you I honestly remember the story of it. I'm not sure I remember the story of Declare, which is a book that I loved from 2000, from mm. 20 years ago, though I could probably tell you the story of The Drawing of the Dark, a book which probably, on retrospect, based on that, I like more than reading. Uh, I No, I enjoy reading more than I enjoy reading Declare. But you're both Tim Powers novels for the people. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting because I'm uh, enthusiastic about Tim Powers as well. I had the odd experience of reading The Drawing of the Dark after I had read um, The Anubis Gates and probably one or two others. Somebody I didn't even know about The Drawing of the Dark, and somebody who was not even a Tim Powers fan said it was her favorite fantasy novel. And, I, and yeah, and I can remember a lot of details about that. It, it, was, it was much, in many, in many ways, a less ambitious novel. It wasn't hmm. nearly as complex a novel as The um, and it wasn't even as complex a novel as uh, the Anubis Gates, which does all kinds of time shifting things. And um, but it's straightforward. It's uh, it, it's just a, a cool read, and and it's an easy plot to remember. You know, it it basically True. has to do with the Fisher King buried under this brewery in Switzerland or wherever it is. Um, so, so, so that kind of thing is, is. I know exactly what you mean. It's it's like walking through an old neighborhood and you recognize. The highlights with Dune. One thing that I do remember about Dune is having two reactions to it. Once I read it, I read Dune when it came out on my own, and I was proud of myself, and I liked it a lot. And it wasn't—I didn't read Dune Messiah, which came out a couple of years later. But I didn't read Dune Messiah until several years later. I had to reread Dune, and then I thought, okay, Dune Messiah makes Dune a much more complicated novel than I thought it was when I read it. <laughs> It, it sort of underlines all there's and, and people have been discussing this uh, online for the last couple of weeks, I gather, because you're right, because of the Villeneuve movie, that it really kind of unpacks and underlines a lot of the critical attitudes in Dune, critical attitudes toward the white savior idea, for example. Yeah. And Paul Paul becomes, as, as everybody knows, less and less a kind of savior heroic figure as he becomes more and more of a god. I'm just trying to remember. I mean, my recollection was wasn't. Uh, June Messiah originally part of June? I think like, it was. In the original manuscript or something. Yeah, uh, that's my understanding. I, the, the Children of Dune, my understanding is that Dune and Dune Messiah were written about at the same time. I'm sure we'll be corrected on this. Mm. Uh, but that, uh, and, and, and at the time that, uh, of course, Herbert was working on these, he wasn't, he wasn't thinking in terms of a franchise. He was thinking in terms of a narrative arc which would tie off in the end at some point. Let and me then, ask you, yeah, sorry, continue. Go ahead. No, 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 I, I, I had nothing useful to say there at all. I was just going to... <laughs> just filling out the hour. Yes, just I mean, filling out the air. Right? Just filling out the air. We'll get there. Okay. What do you think is the most, the book you have reread the most for non-academic purposes? Um, for a period of time, between the time I was 10 and 20, that book would have been T.H. White's The Once and Future King. Mm-hmm. Um, which I loved. I haven't gone back to it in many years now, but I reread it because and everything I knew and everything I came to love about the whole Arthurian mythology was from that uh, from that book. And and then the book influenced Disney and it influenced Camelot and it influenced all other kinds of things. Uh, but it was also a very well written book. T. H. White wrote a, a kind of shorter epic about Victorian England that was equally beautifully written uh, within the science. Okay, that's actually a fantasy novel because there's a good deal of fantasy in it. Um, 
in the last 20 years, it will be hard to come up with something, but I bet you have something in mind. Well, I do, but I just want to say, I did wonder after we spoke to Alex E. Harrow about her book, The Once and Future Witches, if we mm -hmm. had dropped the ball by not asking about the title connection between it, The Once and Future right. King. Yeah, I, I thought about that afterwards also. Um, ah, the joys of hindsight. I did, you, I did have a mm -hmm. wonderful conversation with Mary Rickard once, who apparently had very much the same experience I did of reading and rereading T.H. White when she was younger. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it may be one of those secret books. It's not considered a classic of fantasy. You don't see it listed in mm -hmm. fantasy books that you must read. Uh, and it was basically published uh, in three separate volumes, I think. Uh, the first one as a young adult, and the last couple as just general mainstream fiction. So I, it doesn't seem to have had the impact in the fantasy world that other things have had. But if you want to read about King Arthur, you're a hell of a lot better off reading T.H. White than you are going back to reading Sir Thomas Mallory. <laughs> I think that's probably... I, you know, look, I reread endlessly from age, you know, like 7 to 20, and mm -hmm. I don't know that I could really put a, a finger on whether it would have been, you know, Citizen of the Galaxy or uh, The Star's My Destination or something like that in that period because I read and reread. My brother and I had yeah. a, like, a, literally just a shared bookcase full of books that we'd bought and picked up, uh, and so you would raid those and go back and read and reread and reread. But the one that I remember clearly having reread the most was Dambolo Station, which mm. I read seven times in one year. That's impressive. I don't think I've ever made a record like that. I didn't intend to. You know, I don't think you intend to. But I fell no. into it. You know, the, the way the book opens, laying out the uh, evolution of the, the, the universe in which it will take place. Mm. The introduction of the major character. Sucked me in, sucked me in, and sucked me in again. I mean, I will say... I also haven't reread it since about that. You know, there is now a. He I mean, I think if I picked it up, I would immediately fall into it and remember it immediately. That's my feeling. Um, but yes, you know, sort of the ability to go to go, to go back. Yeah, it, it, it's still. I mean, I can still picture the feeling that I had reading the opening section the first time I read it. That's mm -hmm. an impressive memory, and I, I think you may be. You may be more of a hard science fiction reader than I am. Although when I think about books that I would like to go back and read or the things that I, the ones that I'm led to want to read are novels where I have a suspicion that either for technical reasons or for simple reasons of maturity, I maybe didn't get it all the first. Um, hmm. For example, uh, for technical reasons, a, a book which I think I, or any number of books by Greg Egan are novels which I feel like, okay, I missed part of them the first time. <laughs> um, the second, okay, that's that's the kind of technical thing. There's just stuff going on it that I didn't take the time. I didn't go to his website and look at his equations and that sort of thing. From the literary point of view, the writer I probably most am inclined to reread is Gene Wolfe because mm -hmm. um, every time you reread Gene Wolfe, you're, no matter how well you think you remember the story or the novel, you're reading another layer below it that you didn't know was there the last Fair my, enough. Uh, my, my, my speech, which I had all prepared, this is, this is, this is a, an exclusive for listeners of our podcast. At Gene Wolfe's funeral, there were no speeches. There was just a very modest funeral at a, at, at a Catholic church, and we went to the cemetery. Nobody made any speeches. But at some point, I was told that we were going to be asked to make speeches. So on the way from uh, the cemetery to the restaurant, I was making up a speech. Um, and what I made up was... Uh, everybody, uh, everybody was going to be saying things like, well, we're going to have no more Gene Wolfe novels. Mm -hmm. And my argument was going to be, 
there are always more Gene Wolfe novels because if you go back and read a Gene Wolfe novel that you read two years ago, you're going to find that there's another <laughs> novel in it that you didn't see two years ago. Fair so enough. That's my, that's, 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 that's my funeral speech that I didn't get to make. <laughs> well, I'm sure that will make all of the podcast listeners delighted <laughs> that they've they've now got that that that's little peek through the door on that no doubt sad day. It was um, a very sad. Which book and why do you, was the most disappointing one, whether it was the largest or admiration slash love of it, the previous time you'd read it, and the time you got back to it? Let me think about that for a minute. Uh, there are... Um... You think on it, and I'll give you my candidates to buy you time. Okay. How does that sound? Because I do actually have an example. In 2014, I picked up and reread Glory Road by Robert A. Heinlein. Now, uh-huh. I had read Glory Road a number of times in my teens, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to pretend that I was a perceptive... Um, reader at that time, uh, I didn't see the the problematic nature of the text, shall we say. I was more intrigued by the cover with this scantily clad woman on the on the cover than figuring, is that really what I mm. want to have on the cover of my books? Um, the, when I got back to it, what I found was a very competently written story because that was Heinlein. But the story yeah. itself, the attitude to women and everything else, was more than a tad problematic to my eye. So I found myself really very disappointed, and I put it on my I don't need to read that again show. And then I got told off by the Heinlein Society. Oh, dear. Well, I can understand that because, I, uh, to be honest, i trying to think the last... Uh, the la- I, I did not read all of the late Heinleins. I think I mm-hmm. probably tried no. Number of the Beast right about then, and I, I just I got to the point where I found him unreadable, and, and, and unreadable not only because um, of the hectoring, not just lecturing, mm-hmm. but absolute mm-hmm. hectoring in those novels, but because of the characters being just. Uh, you're right. The, the 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 female characters were even though there were some strong and complex mm-hmm. female characters, the general attitude wasn't a healthy one. Um, I, I think uh, something came to mind, which is a completely different reason of. Um, of, of being disappointed, but not disappointed at the same time, because, and this is going way back in history, it's going back 80 years, I guess, in history at this point, but A.E. E. Van Vogt's novels, which I remember as being just sheer mindless fun <laughs> uh, when I read them the first time around, and I went back and looked at them at some point, I, I, get, I probably had to do the Library of America or something, and I realized they are sheer and mindless, but they are less fun than they were. <laughs> the make no sense whatsoever. The characters have no reasonable motivations whatsoever. Uh, there is a mom in, the, in in Slan that's kind of an important character, but but by and large, and then I became fascinated in them. How did people? How did people like Campbell, who are allegedly uh, the 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 rationalist of the science fiction field, ever fall for this stuff? It's, the plots <laughs> don't even add up. Uh, and I thought these things are not readable to get the kind of joy I apparently got out of them when I was 14. But now they're utterly fascinating as kind of case histories of what went wrong with science fiction readers in the 40s. <laughs> you don't think it was being distracted by the 1940s? Looking back, they're quite a distracting time. Well, actually, it turns out a lot of the answers to the, those questions were in Alec Neville Ali's book. Uh, wow. Although I've talked to him about he didn't really deal with Van Vogt, but Van Vogt was one of the problems. Obviously, if I've gone back and looked at... Um, actually, this is not... Uh, something I had to go back and look at. I remember by the time I stopped reading Asimov's uh, robot stories, which I liked better than his mystery stories, and I didn't really care for the robot foundation thing being merged together. Mm-hmm. Before I even stopped reading those many, many years ago, I thought he has exactly one female character, and she's an old maid. That's all he has. That's mm-hmm. his entire 
quiver with only a couple <laughs> female characters. And it's not very impressive. Do you find yourself cautious or reluctant to recommend texts that once upon a time you were very enthusiastic about, if only because you're no longer sure they're still good? Um, probably, uh, th th this is not unrelated to, to teaching, occasionally teaching mm -hmm. science fiction and thinking it's, it's not just a matter of worrying about trigger warnings and that sort of thing. It's a matter of worrying about sensibility. And sometimes, uh, when I went, the, the, there were a couple of books by friends of our podcast, which I recommended. And it turned out that they, my students didn't like them at all yeah. because the pop culture sensibility in it was clearly as more than one of my students put it, this is clearly a middle-aged guy trying to write about rap, and he doesn't know how. And <laughs> I see that, to be honest. Uh, I was I was as blind as the author under discussion was. Um, but yeah, when I when I think about um, uh, assigning a quote unquote classic science fiction text, I have to think about not just what uh, what what might offend current sensibilities, but what just didn't work in it. What uh, yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think that if you're actually studying classic science fiction, you need to look at uh, works that haven't aged well or that uh, that maybe didn't work well in the first place in order to kind of figure out what happened. Do we overvalue the attention we pay to the small number of people who are actually studying science? Because the vast number of people who listen to who read science fiction, mm. a very good chunk of the number of people who listen to this podcast read science fiction for pleasure. Maybe they right. read it because they like to go to conventions, they like to have conversations about it, but it's a long way from being an academic studying science fiction. True. Well, on the other hand, science fiction has always had its own critical apparatus. It's still, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not only Locus, it's, it's Strange Horizons, it's the review columns sure. uh, in FNSF and so forth and so on. In other words, more, I think, than mysteries, because I'm not involved with mystery fandom at all. But I think science fiction loves to talk about itself. And mm -hmm. So there is, even if there's not a, an official academic uh, connection for most of our listeners, there is that sense that people, uh, my sense is that people like to read reviews. They like to argue about books more than in most sure. genres. Well, so, so the history, the, I mean, the, whole, the whole debate that's been raging about Heinlein and Lovecraft and Asimov and all the problematic writers of the last several decades comes about because people who are readers of the genre are really interested in the history of the genre and in the kind of uh, genealogy of the. Do you think Neuromancer holds up? I haven't reread it in 30 years, and my recollection of it is it's an explosion of a book. It was mind alteringly brilliant when I read it in 1985. Mm. Do you think it's still, I mean, I don't think it can possibly have that effect anymore. But do you it can't have it's... that effect anymore, but it's, it's, uh, I, I looked at it. I didn't reread the whole thing, but I was looking at it for some reason um, a few months ago. And I think it holds up by virtue of its style and attitude, not by virtue of what he talks about in terms of cyberspace. Uh, obviously, you look at it now and you think, oh, look, no cell phones. Uh, but it's, it's really a kind of say, saying that Neuromancer holds up in my mind as a science fiction novel isn't that far away from saying that, oh, uh, Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye still holds up as a hard-boiled detective story. It's a very well-done example of what it does. The characters are striking. Uh, they're still as striking as they were then. A little, some of it may look like cliches today because it's become cliches in the last 35 years. Do you uh, think we're still learning how to contextualize old science fiction and value it because... 
we're trying to work out how to handle the transition of the science element of it into the past. I don't know how well I'm really articulating that, but for a a group of reasons, some of which are because it's all secondary Mm. world, fantasy tends to age better than because it maybe places itself less immediately in the moment. It's less dependent on technological novelty, right? But do you think we are learning how to properly contextualize science fiction so that we can continue to appreciate what merits it has as it ages. Oh, I think we can. And I think the, you're, you're absolutely right. Fantasy is characteristically drawn on the past for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. There's, if, you, if you set a fantasy in the future, how do you know that's not science fiction? Um, and when fantasy does deal with technology or, or change, as let's say Joe Abercrombie is doing in his current series, it's, it's you know Renaissance technology entering the Middle Ages and mm-hmm. changing the nature of society. With science fiction, I, I've never had a problem with going back and uh, looking at science fiction uh, whose science is outdated. Uh, by and large, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, Olaf Stapledon, early. I mean, uh, every, most classic science fiction is going to have science that doesn't work. To some extent, ironically enough, the science fiction that was the, the most uh, hand-waving kinds of science fiction seems to hold up pretty well. Nobody knows what a positronic brain is now any more than they did 70 years ago. And so, okay, Isaac, go with your positronic brains. When it's, it seems culturally outdated, it's another thing. And the thing that strikes me about Neuromancer is that it's a pretty good uh, depiction of what a kind of uh, street data culture has become. In other words, that the, the central, uh, I guess, constellation of characters that uh, that... Gibson came up with in that original trilogy in Neuromance has become a staple of everything that comes. The, 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 the street kid who's, uh, who's a super hacker is like a, a fixture of, of, of uh, movies and TV these days. So I think, I think when something is badly outdated culturally, we tend to notice that more than if it's outdated scientifically. The ideal mechanized cities with flying hover cars and this sort of thing that you saw in Frank R. Paul didn't happen. It doesn't. It's 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 exactly what uh, Gibson was writing about in the Gernsback Continuum. You know, that's mm. that's a dream that veered off into an alternate reality, and it's quaint to look at that sort of today because it seems so off base. I think the most interesting thing I heard this week was a conversation I had for Saga to promote the year's best, where mm. myself, Charlie Andrews. Uh, Charles Anders, Elizabeth Bear, uh, Malka Older, and Fran Wilde had a chat about the state of science fiction, Great. and. Great Charlie, it was a great group of people. Unfortunately, Fonda Lee had, you know, had been scheduled to make it, couldn't make it. But Charlie mm. James talking about how uh, you know, science science fiction is actually historical fiction, which I think is a really interesting point of view. And there's an article an about it yeah, over sure. on on Tor.com. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, rereading science fiction is, is a strange thing these days. And I find myself, I mean, you're impressed because I could put my hand before we started talking on a copy of the Cluiston Test by Kate mm-hmm. Wilhelm. But I find myself surrounded by old texts, and I wonder about how relevant they are to our world anymore. I mean, for example, this is a great example that I don't want to belabor too much because it can become mm-hmm. cruel, but how well does the work of David Brin hold up? You know, there's a, a, a there's an intensely mm-hmm. successful period in his writing, which I think would date from the mid-80s to the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder whether it's, you know, I've not reread Star Tide, right? It's interesting that uh, you mentioned it because I forgot who it was I was talking to on one of our short podcasts who had been reading Star Tide Rising and, or rereading, I guess, with great pleasure. And I haven't reread it in a while either. I had a period of time when I really liked uh, 
th that part of David Brin. I mean, the, the, the postman, it struck me, was David Brin doing something very traditional. Uh, but the Star Trek books, I, I think that what that tells me is that the answer is hold up for whom? In other words, uh, I suspect, I don't, I haven't looked at, that in a long time. I suspect it might still impress me the way it did the first time I read it. I suspect other people might look at it, there you are, and yep. find nothing much new in it at all. But, you know, the same thing is true with um, with C.J. Cherry. Um, mm. I've, I've not read nearly as much C.J. Cherry as you have, but I know people who will go back and reread her again and again and again, and it always seems new. Um, so, there's no right or wrong answers with this. I mean, I, I, I talk about going back and rereading A Voyage to Arcturus. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody else to read for the first time unless <laughs> you are somebody that is into this kind of a very weird kind of fantasy. Um, Can uh, I just say, I've, I'm looking at my copy of Star Tide Rising right now. It's signed by oh. David Brin. He came here to Perth. Oh. And it's signed, Good Luck, Jonathan, David Brin. And for some reason, that sounds vaguely threatening to me now. <laughs> it's like, good luck, you're going to need it. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm sure he didn't mean it. Good luck way. getting out of this bookstore because I have <laughs> people stationed at the entrance. I don't know. I mean, there are uh, things that, uh, well, you and I, for example, uh, years ago put together the best of Joe Haldeman, and we both mm -hmm. had to reread a lot of Joe Haldeman. And there were things, you're probably hearing my microphone pick up the sirens outside, which does not mean that Chicago has descended into chaos. Further. Not yet, anyway. But anyway, I, I remember there, there are favorite stories, including the Hemingway hoax, that I go back and look at them and think, okay, this is a literary kind of time travel thing with all kinds of cleverness in it. It's as clever now as it then, but you know, if you don't like that kind of literary elusive science fiction, it may never uh, appeal to you in the first place. True. I think that's fair. Um, let me ask you this. No, let, let me say this. The book that changed my thinking about science fiction and my feeling towards science fiction the most mm -hmm in the last 40 years, would be Aurora by Kim Stanley Robbins. Aurora? Undeniably. Uh, even if I had been intellectually aware of the absurdity of space travel, it was Aurora that convinced me of the emotional absurdity of space, tra of space travel, and particularly space opera, which I enjoy and love, but now mm. have to kind of filter through a weird epic fantasy le uh, lens to be able to approach it all. Because... None of it's anything other than big fantasy. And so, and it also makes me feel very, it's interesting. It also killed my enthusiasm for uh, space travel pretty much entirely. I tend to look at it now as a kind of irresponsible, absurd ex for abstract reasons. Um, but setting that anathema aside, is there a similar book for you in the last 30 or 40 years that changed how you thought about it? I think that, well, to, to touch upon Aurora for a second, I can understand why that may have appealed to you the way it did, uh, because it's a science fiction novel in many ways about science fiction. It's mm. a science fiction novel about a favorite science fiction fantasy. And when I read it, I remember thinking back on a lot of uh, Generation Starship tales. And, and, and one of the things that Aurora didn't do this for me for the first time, but it made me look back on all these Generation Starship tales, and almost all of them end in some kind of disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the most famous in Heinlein's universe doesn't, but you go back and look at, uh, there's one by uh, Brian Aldous uh, called Starship in English. I forgot what the British title was. Nonstop is the British title. Mm -hmm. uh, there were stories by uh, Clifford Simak. There were stories, all, all kinds. And usually it turns out that's a bad idea. So I think that um, is what Aurora did was simply make an elaborate literary argument about why a science fiction theme won't work. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think so. So, so to that extent, I, I, I agree with you. It's an it's an important book, and it's not going to stop people writing. Oh no, 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 Starship tales. Nor should it, because I mean, uh, because a generation Starship trail is simple. Tale is simply too useful to a writer like River Solomon, for example, who can use it for well, kind of analog for slavery and inequality. I think what happens over time with an idea like whether whether it be the the, the very general thing of space opera, whether it's something specific like um, a generation starship story, is mm-hmm. that over time the idea goes from being at its simplest about itself, like oh wow, isn't this a neat idea, to something mm-hmm. that's being deconstructed and reconstructed and reconsidered and rethought and then used as a tool to tell a different kind of story because it sits there in the field the way it does. I think the Mm. way most of the current generation of newly published space opera writers write space opera is different to the way people used to write. I don't think think that an Arcadia Martin, although heavy, is is writing space opera in, I think Alistair Reynolds does it, but I also then think that if you come to the you know, the very cusp of the moment, right? They are looking at it as something, you know, they've also been influenced by such a different group of people. I still think critics in science fiction, myself included, struggle to take into account the variety of influences that writers have that end up in their texts that aren't part of the traditional path. Very few fantasy readers today or writers today are not as influenced by Steve Jackson as they are by J.R.R. Tolkien. Right. It's just a truth. And yet I'm unfamiliar with Steve Jackson's work, but I don't game and that also comes in to military science fiction it comes into all kinds of things in that sort of space and it doesn't matter that you also get a strong comic book influence coming in uh and in addition to the gaming influence other things as well it all changes it and makes it more complicated and I'm, I'm well aware of my age not picking up all the things that are going into science fiction but when i see something new and i i'm as we've been talking i've been churning in the back of my mind what what made me see science fiction in a new way and and some things did come to mind one which i would say i would still argue is one of the most underrated series of novels dealing with variations on nanotech which was kathleen angunan's queen city jazz series uh because it was urban science fiction completely rethinking the idea of an urban area completely rethinking the idea of of what a city can be of a living city um and at the same time had really complicated nanotech ideas behind it. It had a lot of cultural reference to it, and, and, and it, the, crep, the cultural reference shifted from one city to the next, and uh, it, so it's, it's, it, it alludes to uh, American literature in different ways. I think another thing that uh, made me think science fiction had a kind of new energy was when I read Hanu Rayunyemi's uh, The Quantum Thief. Here's an idea of taking some of the most... Uh, time-worn young adult plots, the thief, the super thief, and the super detective, um, and putting that in, again, a completely alienated sort of universe. Um, the, the, the sense that I'm in a transformed environment that's transformed by something other than traditional mechanical technology. In other words, when I read uh, stories like David Marasek's couple of stories, The Wedding Album, and a, and a couple of others. This is a world I hadn't seen before. When I saw Hanu Rayanimis, I thought, this is a world I hadn't seen before. Kathy Goonan, I hadn't seen this world before. These were not simply variations on earlier science fiction cities. They were reconceived from the ground up. And I think that's been going on all the way up to and including Sam Miller's Blackfish City. Are there books that when you look back, when you read them the first time, you expected them to have a longer footprint and have more influence 
than maybe they perhaps have. I can I look back on a Go number ahead. of books. I mean, the first most obvious book that always comes to mind, and it feels like a put down of the author, even though I love the author's work and I don't think, is The Wind-Up Girl, which mm-hmm. felt like it was going to influence everything. Uh, and I also tend to think about Accelerando by Charles Stross, which yeah. I thought was going to influence everything, but seemed to come to its own immediate end almost as soon as they was gathered into book covers as a set of as, as a novel um so i'm curious i mean and i feel something something a little similar with the, the hanu ryan yemi book mm. i feel like it was as sometimes happens and it's not a flaw in the book or for the with, with the writer that they they, they if, if you like they, they they burn for the for the for the summer and then they're they're gone well, i'm not sure that the books are gone i think that that the, the, they're doing something which is original enough and and bizarre enough uh, that no one really tries to imitate it. People want to invent. Here, here's an example. Okay, here's an example of a writer who I I never tire of rereading since mm-hmm. you mentioned it, and that's Cordwainer Smith. Uh, and any number of people I know are equally fond of Cordwainer Smith's fiction, and yet I know very few people who try to write in that kind of universe. Um, who try to there may be. Cordwainer Smith inspired stories, and there may be kind of the future as a legend of the distant past, which has become a convention since he wrote. Um, human characters who are a- actually animals or animals who are really people. All that sort of thing is kind of filtered into science fiction, but nobody has actually tried to write instrumentality stories in the way he did. No, and no, I think the same true. thing. And I think the same thing is true about uh, the, the the city, uh, the, the the weird concepts that uh, Ryan Emi came up with in. In, in that novel, or the weird concepts that uh, that Kathy Goonan came up with in her novel, so I don't think it's fair to say that they uh, just disappeared. They simply remained sweet generous. They were not novels that uh, created schools of novel. In a sense, Gibson was doing this at a time when he was simply, and, and you know, Gibson wasn't that revolutionary either. In the sense no. that if you go back and look at Bester or even Harlan Ellison, the idea of street smarts, uh, street kids taking over technology had kind of been floating around for a couple of decades before then. He put it together in a way that everybody else could buy into. It's yeah. much harder to buy into a nanotech city. Um, I mean, one of the most impressive nanotech cities I've seen in recent fiction was Saad Hussein's uh, The God of Thursday and uh, the Gorka and the... Uh, the Gorka Lord and the Lord of Tuesday. Okay. Now, that what city was that again? Um Oh, God, it was in the Himalayas. Kathmandu? Was, Kathmandu, yeah. Okay, that Kathmandu, I thought was just terrific. I thought it was a city like... It is. It's, it, 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 puts, it puts together like, um, you know, a, a whole panoply of Asian mythology. It puts together a whole set of ideas about artificial intelligence, about nanotech. I don't expect... And I love the city. I love the novella. I don't expect anybody to be using his city in future novels. I think the... Uh, I don't think that's going to be an influential novella, as great as I think it is. You may be right. You may be right. So tell me, as we, we actually make it towards the end of a kind of waffly hour, <laughs> um, what are you reading? I'm reading a Sarah, Sarah Gailey novel about clones, which made mm-hmm. me think about clone novels. And uh, what do I happen to clone novels? Did they go mainstream? Did clone novels turn into things like Never Let Me Go and uh, um, other things? But it's it's... It's a question that I've been thinking about. Are there some science fiction ideas that just sort of lay there? You can do a lot of things with clones and plots, but the idea of a clone is just pretty much the same as it has been for the last 50 years. 
I, I, I can see how it could be coming back. I mean, the last major novel I really dread for my mind, David Brin novel called Kiln People, which was... That's right. But I do wonder with... In, in, the, in this time of pandemic, with our interest in uh, avatars and robots and everything else, that mm. iterations, biological iterations of people will become interesting again. Because you're right, ideas do fall out of favor, whether it's psionic powers and telepathy yeah, exactly. or whether it's cloning. And cloning is a kind of curious one to find a, you know, a good thing to do. And we'll do something interesting with. It does show up in some short fiction, but, but less at novel length because it is I think a little trickier I, I, to come I up think, with just a, a good thing to do with it. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that happened with clones uh, is that to some extent, uh, like psionics, it's sort of migrated as a theme into horror fiction. Yeah. Um, there was a Michael Marshall Smith novel, I think, called Spares, uh, which was essentially a, the same people as clones being raised as spare parts, basically, for rich people. And an idea which has been floating around ever since then. Uh, it's shown up in movies. There was a movie called The Island. And so that's what happened to clones and psionics. Psionics got taken over by Stephen King personally. Good. I'm Think not of a fan of how many psychic powers are, are, are in Stephen King novels, and it just it's it's a function of horror now, not of. Uh, but it's, it's which is perfectly fine because, in my opinion, horror should have always had psionics. Yeah. Uh, there was never anything you know. Uh, there, there was never anything reasonable about that. Uh, uh, in, in, in science fiction terms. It worked as long as Philip K. Dick was using it because he was loony to begin with and he used the idea <laughs> in way. And if Crazy ideas loony, for crazy people. <laughs> but when, when you've got, well, to go back to our favorite whipping boy these days, John W. Campbell trying to take psionics seriously with absolutely no way of rationalizing it, um, it, it never belonged in science fiction and and horror, it's always been there. There's always been the hypnotic power that you have over the, uh, the, the, the young lady that you're about to turn into a vampire. Fair enough. So you're reading Sarah Gailey's Echo and being dubious about clone. Are mm -hmm. you are, are you <laughs> are you ready for this? Uh, yes. We're almost at the end of the hour, but we're almost at the end of the year. We may have done okay. 72,000 episodes of the podcast, but there have been some extraordinary books published. Uh, we've seen strange and interesting things happen in the field because of... Mm -hmm. are, are you ready for for, for the, the end of the year for possible hiatus for recommended reading and year in review? The recommended reading list is something I always kind of have in mind during the year. And there are things mm. that are clearly uh, the, the recent high points that come to mind uh, and certainly include Piranesi, uh, which, by the way, since you mentioned it, that might be a book I go back and reread a couple of times. Yeah, it got a fairly solid review from Adam Roberts on his sibilant fricative blog. Ah, not I've an not overwhelmingly positive one. Not overwhelmingly positive. It's um, well, it's it, it's a very original book, and I think there's a lot of thought that went into it. That uh, that I, you know, this is this is the problem with reading books for review is that you're you're basically writing down your first impression. You can't oh, put a book aside and come back yes, six weeks later. It's and absolutely true. I, I think he described it as a puffed up short story. Um, it could very well be, uh, actually what I liked about it was the fact that it was not extending its length beyond what it needed. Mm. I think it was I, a, I would, I would, I would more likely, uh, describe it as an unpacked and deconstructed novella because there's a novella at the back end, which you could, you could, you could narrate the thing, uh, in chronological order and it wouldn't be nearly as interesting. So I think the structure of the thing is what makes it really, really work interesting. And I think you touched on a problem with, 
unintentionally or tangentially uh, with the whole process we're about to go through that we've talked about over and over and over and yeah. over again over the 10 years of the podcast, which is that I'm yet to read Piranesi, right? So Piranesi mm-hmm. is not in my top books of the year when I look at them for the ones that I've read myself, right? My, my right. top books of the year are books like, you know, The Ministry for the Future and The Once mm-hmm. and Future Witches and... <sighs> So many others, we, you know, we all tell, well, we all hear stories in the dark, right? Which if it doesn't well, get onto our recommended reading list, I will get very angry about it. There are titles. The other thing that becomes sensitive, it's, it's an issue when we put together the Locus recommended reading list, is that there are books that I thought were going to have uh, enormous influence that, um, that really didn't seem to have much impact in the field. The Vanished Birds, Simone, uh, Simon Jimenez. I was just reading example. a very good review about it. Again, no, another a, very good review. It's just a very recently. good book. Um, yeah, uh, and there's the, that, that Micaiah Johnson book, which is also very good. Uh, the Shape Within something. Why have I gone blank on the title? Uh, anyway, yes, you, you, you're mentioning the, the Simon Jimenez. The, the, so, so that, I thought, would have, have a bigger uh, splash than it did. There's a, a book which I liked quite a bit that, I don't think very many people have read at all of Paul McCauley's War of the Maps because it's not been out in the state. Um, so uh, it's available in digital. That. Okay, uh, but there's also um, Sir Pell's the old what's that? What's the the, the Zambian novel uh, that I read part of uh, and just one? Oh, oh the uh, Nawali. The old drift. The old drift. The, the old drift. Yes. Oh, well, really awful! That sounds start, terrible. We should cut this part out. <laughs> I, I read the, I read several chapters of it. I couldn't, I couldn't finish it in time to write a review. It is gorgeously written. Yeah, it's just a beautiful novel, and I, uh, I want to. That's one I want to go back and finish. Uh, yes. So I think that's a, a, a major, you know, thing to think about. So uh, I, I think there were a lot of good things. That's a Are 2019 things... book, though, Gareth. It's a 2019 book. Yeah, we, yeah. So, oh, you're right. It is. I only read it this year because you won the Clark Award. Ah, okay. Anyway, we're, we're now at the official rambly waffle part of the podcast. So we, we can wrap this up, promise people, well, more short podcasts that we can't, you know, promise regularity. I mean, you know, thanks mostly to you. There was a good 50 in a row after the 100 in a row. And there's no official hiatus, just a lack of competence in continuing to produce I mean, No, them. that's not a lack of competence. After all, we're, we're covering a lot of territory and people have been very um, cooperative and very delightful to talk to. But I, th- I think from, from here on out, we may be seeing them in batches. They're not going to go away. But when we did 100 in a row, which we didn't plan on doing, it was completely insane. Had we planned on doing it, I would, had you said, let's do 100 in a row, I would have said, Jonathan, no, go enjoy some of your single malt more than you have, <laughs> because I'm not going to have this conversation. You should know, dear listeners, that he says this to a number of my ideas over time. Well, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. <laughs> But we, we, we did 100, and we're, we're continuing to do them. Uh, it's yeah. just that maybe not every day from now on forever. Fair enough. Well, on that cheery note, maybe a time to wind up for the And on that cheery note, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.